Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be talking with Rajesh Patel, Director of Performance, Athletic Director at Quinnipiac University, located in Connecticut. V is an absolute genius stud in terms of a strength coach. I've known him for almost better part of two decades. Uh, kind of shows my age. Uh, I, I couldn't think of a better person to talk about Tensegrity. And I, I just remembered how much he knew on the stuff. And I was like, hey, I want to see if I can get you on for a call and to go through with this. And my God, uh, when you listen to this podcast, B did not disappoint. We went into so many really cool areas looking at bio, looking at kinetics, looking at the foot function, looking at the thorax relative to the pelvis, looking at anatomy lines, looking at multiplanar, multi-vector training. It was awesome. It was an amazing conversation. I highly recommend you guys go through this entire episode, pause, take notes, whatever you need to do to process everything that it is. B actually has some really cool resources out for himself, and I highly recommend you go to them. And we'll have them listed in the notes as well as in the module. If you go to www.coachbpatel.com backslash learn, you'll get access to his website where you can see a lot of the stuff that he put down in a very similar timeline as what I was putting this down as during COVID and lockdown and you know, just trying to read, you know, think about everything you know and trying to put it down pen to paper. He also has uh, his podcast, which I highly recommend you go through that too. So uh, it's the Ath- Meta Athletes of the Playbook at iTunes, which will also have that listed within our notes. And then he actually has a course, which also you should definitely check out, Understanding the Fashion and its Role in the Performance, uh, which is really cool that we were able to get beyond here to talk about you know, this specifically uh, with him having as much knowledge, insight, and information as he does have with it. So head over to all his resources, uh, listen to this entire podcast, get over to the module. If you guys didn't know, we actually have modules. We have modules associated with the curriculum. The curriculum is pretty expansive. It's 50 modules broken up into four sections, coaching, nutrition, movement, and training. This one is within our movement section. And we've talked a lot about movement variability, all the way down to now we're in Tensegrity. So we're chipping away at all of our modules one by one, trying to create this learning format that's chunked, that's organized, that's working with each other through our forum, through all the, the content we're posting around that. So get on the PH curriculum. It's worth two CEUs from the NSCA now. So when you finish the curriculum, you have access to using PH curriculum for improving your CEUs. So another really cool asset for you. Secondly, we have two really cool resources out. One being Strength Deficit, the book. This is your leveraging eccentrics versus concentric strength ratios. This is a technical guide. Feedback has been phenomenal. People have been talking about, this is a really good resource, incredible amount of information. Issue being is now I got to figure out how to apply it. And that's why we came out with the course. The course is a practical guide to strength strength deficit. This is your companion to the book. This is the more boots on the ground. I understand the concepts. I think this is a really good training idea or framework. Now, how do I apply it? And that's what we go through in the course. And the course is 21 actual modules 
broken up into six different sections in which we go through frameworks or the models that made up the actual strength deficit philosophy or framework. Then we go into testing and KPIs. Then we go into physiology and biomechanics. Then we transition to increasing and decreasing the deficit and finish off with practical considerations, which I'm sure a lot of people are gonna really wanna hear because we have protocols, we have all the anecdotes in which I learned everything over the years about applying strength deficit. So these are the these are the tools. These are the things that are going to help you really understand strength deficit as well as the curriculum. So all those three together are going to be really good assets and tools for you guys to really learn and understand how to become an amazing coach. Lastly, realize.me. This is your command center for all health and wellness performance. This is where I use to store all of my information, track all of the wearables, track all the things that I'm doing through Aura through Apple and trying to understand what the impact is relatively speaking to the training that I'm doing and my goals. I can create experiments, I can sequester labs, I can order supplements at a discount. So there's a lot of really cool things on Realize that that's going to make you want to get on there, especially if you're a, a tinker or a thinker, someone who wants to really push the envelope for high performance, which, you know, if you're listening to this, you probably do. So get over to realize.me your command center for all health and wellness performance. This is in a beta version, so when you get on there, you're an early adopter and you're gonna have not only early access, but a great early rate. So head over to realize.me and let's really try to improve our training. Without further ado, let's get my guy B, Prabesh Prajesh Patel, to talk about Tetsagrity. This is an amazing episode and I know you guys are gonna love it. And then we'll see you guys next week because we're gonna be talking about nutrient timing. All right. guys we got Prajesh Patel director of performance at Quinnipiac or is it a head strength conditioning coach no I've upgraded I'm uh, now an associate athletic director for athletic performance well damn man that's yeah. awesome that's a whole nother conversation right like you, you yeah you you it's just kind of a fancy yeah. way of saying head strength conditioning coach right yeah, yeah it's, it is I, I, every once in a while <laughs> yeah right I uh yeah I've been here for going on 15 years now and yeah, I started out the program from from nothing there was nobody before me and um, it was just me. And then eventually, like now I've got to the point where we have three full-time staff members too. Um, the administration has, you know, um, invested in me and they they think they thought highly enough of me to make me an associate athletic director, which puts me in some different meetings and different conversations. But in reality, like my job is still the same. It's, it's to help the student athletes become the best versions of themselves and to try to help them perform. Yeah, man, it's... You know, I think that's another thing, you know, kind of maybe have another conversation for another time. But this talk about how do you get more? Well, your, your athletic department tells you exactly how they think about you every single day by what they're willing to give you. And you got to go out there and earn it. And you got to go out there and prove it. And you got to go out there and sell what you're doing, especially if, you know, I can imagine what that first weight room looked like when you walked in there. It was probably not much. And now to see what you got now and you have multiple weight rooms and multiple staff members and. You know, it takes time, but man, once you actually show that you can sell your program and sell the value of what you're doing to for student athletes and the overall athletic department, like, and granted too, the other aspect, it's, you know, hockey's a big deal there, man. And you got some programs that are really good and that, 
you know, it just so happens when you got there, things started going up and to the right, you know, so um, really cool, man. Uh, so today we're going to talk a lot about fascia, tensegrity, uh, anatomy trains, a lot of different areas we can go into. And we've gotten pretty, pretty in the weeds in the actual uh, module on this one, going through this idea of compressional discontinuity, just a fancy way of like almost joint by joint, maintaining space within the joints, controlling fascial lines, thinking about compression and tension to move freely and being like a good athlete. So to speak but i want to open this up to you uh you know where are you at right now when you think about fascia you know and we can go into self-myofascial release we can go into anatomy lines we can go into um just mobility flexibility we can go into just your programming but where are you at now with fascia comparatively speaking to maybe the first time you heard about this 15 20 years ago like what was the progression and where are you at now with you and training your athletes yeah, that's a great question. And I think it, it's, uh, there's many stages to that. Like I first heard about fascia in 2005 and I sat down for, um, Mike Boyle's functional strength coach one. And I was an assistant at Holy Cross at that time. And I, you know, I thought I knew a lot and here, you know, Mike was a mentor of mine, a friend of mine. And, you know, he's talking about anatomy trains and, in a foam rolling in the, the bottom of your feet. And, and I was, and I was blown away. I was like, this guy has accomplished so much, but yet he continues to push the boundaries of what's out there and what he can learn to try to help his clientele the best that he can. And, um, you know, I you know, heard about fascia throughout the years and it wasn't until I think 2018, maybe 20 end of 2017 that I started to um, realize, you know what, I'm just going to take a deep dive. And I think that's how I best learn is when I really take a deep dive. And um, the things that kind of were the catalyst to it were, were my exposure to RPR, my exposure to PRI, and started to see the commonalities between the two systems because they are systems, right? Um, but they are systems in an effort to try to improve nervous system function and, and in turn, to try to improve your joint function and motor potential. So I started to see the commonalities and I started to realize that fascia was at the was a cornerstone of both. And then I, so I started to read Anatomy Trains first. That was my first, first book. And then I started to talk to a lot of other colleagues and friends. And, and one of them was big into Tai Chi. And he told me to read the Iron Shirt by Mantak Chia. And he started to talk about Qigong. And then when I started to look at the book, there were so many things that I hadn't realized that the Chinese knew about fascia long before Western culture did. And it was really interesting to hear them talk about fascia and how essentially the body is interconnected. And they just looked at things from a holistic perspective, where whereas we in the West tend to look at things from a you know, reductionist perspective. And we kind of break things down into different parts and segments. When in reality, when I learned about RPR, PRI, uh, you know, even Gary Gray, like Gray Cook stuff, like it's the kinetic chain. And I had always looked at things from that lens, from my experiences of working with other coaches and, and under different people. But I think when I started to dig a deep dive down these down this rabbit hole, things started to get a little bit more connected. And then I started to look into Stretch to Win by the Fredericks. And I started to look into um, the Stecco Fascial Manipulation Method by Dr. Warren Hammer. And, and I'm not a I'm not a physical therapist. Like I, I can't put my hands on people. But for me as a coach, the more 
exposed exposure that I have to physical therapy, athletic training, the better understanding that I have of, of injuries, movement dysfunctions, and then how training and how we can manipulate training, sequencing, and all these different variables to try to improve an athlete's ability to move much more freely. Like, and I think that's a cornerstone of, of my philosophy when it comes to strength conditioning. It's, it's not about um, getting somebody as strong as they humanly can or getting just somebody as fast as they humanly can. Uh, the, the essence of what I do, it, it's, it's based on movement, right? Like our job is to enhance an athlete's ability to move more effectively. And we use exercise to enhance movement. Um, but the key thing to understand about if you want to really try to improve movement is that it requires this delicate balance of mobility and stability and our ability to get into positions is going to be a, a requisite prerequisite to be able to apply the maximum amount of force that we can to redirect force and move throughout our environment. And I've learned that fascia is, is it's an obstacle to our position, meaning that you could switch, you can use the different term posture for position, but in reality, like if we don't have the ability to get in these right positions to reduce force, then we're not going to be able to right positions to be able to produce force. And if fascia is an underlying obstacle to that, then we can beat our heads against the wall, but we're not going to be able to get in those right positions. We're not going to be able to optimize our movement. So that's where I fascia really started to create a little bit more clarity in how, um, how best I can try to help my athletes move a little bit more effectively. Does that make kind of make sense so far? Yeah. I mean, I, that's, that's a very like good breakdown. And one of the things I always want to talk to about the listeners of like, never ask a coach about what to read. Cause you just laid out three books right there in that discussion. Just listen, right? Like, all right. Anatomy trains, iron shirt. And then there was one more book in there. Um, fashion manipulation by hammer, right? Like this. Yeah. Well, uh, it's like Luigi Stecco, and, but I learned about it through Warren hammer who actually is in Connecticut. So when oh. you come back out in Connecticut, I can introduce you to him as a fashion legend. Well, but it goes into this other idea though, of now we get into this, like, threshold as a strength coach who has a limited scope right like in theory we're not allowed to put hands on right we can't manipulate tissue in any way because we're not licensed in that way which it's ironic because pretty much everything we read is all based off that central tenet of like we even go back as like charlie francis like it was all based off of manipulating tissue and then if you go to altis like all they're talking about is go through moon prep and see where they're tight and start to release and it's like I can't do any of that. I have no hands-on ability within the scope or legal like like structure. Licensure, of, yeah. Yeah, and it's it becomes this like interesting thought experiment off of do I can I replicate that with self myofascial release? Can I replicate that with just really good programming, right? Do I have really structural balance program and create this appropriate length tension relationship, this stability and mobility on either side of the joint, create adequate spacing? what is your go-to like so you work with professional athletes maybe have more disposable income and then you have that conversation of like i'm hitting this brick wall or i work with this other group of athletes that i have to control a lot i have to work with an atc maybe a physical therapist that works with the team you know what is this like now like 
almost less like dichotomy when we think about like your setup, right? The high performance model, like what Exos is like trying to like push us towards the dream of like, oh, they're tight. Just send them to the physical therapist and massage yeah, yeah, therapist. Yeah, yeah. You know, like this. It's like, yeah, great on paper, awful when you're actually boots on the ground and you're like, you got a hundred athletes in front of you and they're all tight and they're all restricted and they all feel like shit all the time. And you're like, yeah, we're going to train hard today, guys. And we're going to push hard. And if you have something we need to modify, I'm going to modify as we need to. But, you know, how are you with that? Like knowing in this 10 foot, thousand foot level, like, hey, I can really cut to the chase here and make some great headway with tissue manipulation however my scope and then the constraints of my job you know really limit that and then potentially having the other end of some professional hockey players that might come through on a pretty frequent basis that might have that ability or that disposable income to do that like how do you navigate that yourself yeah that's a difficult one and uh you know what's interesting when you talked about like you typically we think about manipulating tissue with 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 hands-on hands-on work but another way to look at things, because I'm a big perspective guy, like it's if you just shift your perspective, you can look at you can see things from a different angle. It gives you a different lens. But whenever we load somebody, we're going to be manipulating tissue. You know what I mean? Whether we, if we decide to do plyometrics, we do speed training, we do heavy resistance training, we, we're manipulating tissue, you know, whether we know it or not. And and by manipulating tissue, the, the, the main objective of manipulating tissue is to change the tone. Right, or change the state of a tissue, and the reason why you would want to do that is because it can improve your ability to move more freely, and it can improve your ability to get into positions. So, kind of like what we talked about before. So, by me being exposed to RPR, PRI, some fascial manipulation, um, it's kind of given me this different perspective, and in, in figuring out different ways at which we can do our resistance training exercises. Um, to be able to improve our positioning. And so, you know, I'll, I'll talk about this. Like, so when I started take, taking some PRI courses, I looked at everything from that lens and thinking about different exercises that we had to do to be able to restore an athlete's pelvis, the ability of their pelvis to move uh, through internal actual rotation and be able to get into each, every single hip. Um, and we would do these remedial physical therapy, maybe rehab type exercises if you've ever been exposed to PRI. And I started to realize that, you know what, like this, athletes don't always want to do this because it makes them feel like, like there's a reason why athletes like the weight room more than they like the training room, right? They, it's because they feel like they're actually an athlete. They don't feel like a patient. And so doing some of these exercises definitely helped an athlete feel better and improve their positioning. But all I did was it gave us a window of opportunity to set us up for whatever it is that we're going to do next. And when I started to look at fascia, what started to happen is I started to understand how to sequence things a little bit more effectively or pair exercises together a little bit more effectively that I can improve somebody's posture position. For example, if I knew somebody's overhead uh, ability to get overhead was restricted. Um, we started to come up with a little se series of exercises. We would do a like a like a dumbbell pullover on a bench. Number one, so we would use gravity to assist us with a little bit of load. Um, then we would go into a push up. So now we have to resist and we have to push against it. But we'd go uh, on a box. So we'd have to go in between the box, and then we'd finish by doing some incline wise. And we would do those sequence of three exercises, and the athletes would be like, "Wow, my shoulders feel unreal right now." And so we just manipulated their tissue to allow them to be able to get their arms overhead, but also inhibit anything, any um, 
inhibit their pecs to a degree, um, also activate their their, their lower traps and in in their posterior chain and their upper back um, to allow them to get in better positions to whatever it is that we were going to do next, whether it be throwing med balls or pressing, pulling, whatever it may be. It just got us in a better position. Um, other things that we've learned uh, by doing some direct calf work before we start to squat. You know, and it could be some mobility, stability work there too, but just really going through a full range of motion of anter- of ankle plantar flexion and dorsiflexion has done wonders to try to improve somebody's ability to squat. So it's, it's not the same as if I put you down on a table and manipulated some tissues around your ankle or around your pecs. Uh, we just use load and we use gravity and we used, we, we used our environment and the tools that we had at our disposal to alter and change fascia. And then you could always say, well, B, how do you know that you're manipulating fascia? I don't really know. You know, like that's one of those things like, can you really isolate out fascia? No, I don't think you do. Because anytime you exercise or anytime you move, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to load muscles. You're going to load connective tissue. You're going to load your fascia. You're going to load, you're going to load bone. You're going to load everything. Um, But I have realized that there's different cues that we can use that can impact our fascia just a little bit more. So really trying to understand how kinetic chains work and anatomy trains work in this concept of how we are this single interconnected web of collagen you know what I mean? That that's, that surrounds and binds everything. Like I'm sure you've talked about before, like a tensegrity model kind of holds everything together. If I move one joint, I'm going to tension another joint within my body, you know, and getting this concept of understanding how to reach and how to fully lengthen and put tension on the whole chain as we stretch and as we move and as we load has done wonders for improving people's mobility. Like that is, is it's, is clearly evident in our in our athletes and the way they they feel, um, and it's very qualitative, right? It's 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 we're not getting people out with a put them on the table and use an goniometer. It is very qualitative in how they describe how they feel and how they move, but also I can see it. I can see that they have a little bit more stability. I can see that they have uh, that they're a little bit more free, that they're a little bit more fluid, that they they look a little bit more athletic. Um, so that's how we've been able to use. Our environment and my skill set and my my scope to be able to truly impact an athlete's fascia. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about, and I'm sure you've read Supple Leopard, was this idea where Sturette essentially just reverse engineered these like consistent CrossFit movements, which you know, when you got to that like finale, it was like kind of felt deflating, right? You're like, I don't give a shit about kipping pull-ups. Like, I don't care. What what can they do with a strict chin up? Like that was like would have been a much better outlet, but it did make you think about, can you reverse engineer a movement by like carpetmentalizing a joint? Like, all right, we're gonna work ankle mobility, we're gonna work hip or pelvic control and thorax control to improve this this back squat position or to improve the ability to back squat with a more vertical torso and getting below parallel, et cetera. You know, and when you start to like look to of like, all right, am I funneling everything into these like correlate exercises or these predetermined, maybe my own personal preference based exercises, or are you thinking about it from a more uh, global or like, I guess, transitioning to hockey or basketball or even track and field, like this more open environment, this more multivariate environment, like, you know, how do you triangulate that? Like, how do you answer that like process of like, yeah, I need them to be good on the ice, but before I get there, I need to be able to squat without pain or without like dysfunction. Like, you know, how do you navigate that question? Does it start with that thing you're doing in the weight room or is it thinking, all right, how's this manifesting into the ice or the rent or the court? Yeah, that's a, um, 
it's an interesting question and like most answers i think it depends but in reality sometimes an individual may need a direct specific joint work if that's what they need to um to build up a weak area in their chain or the you know um but in reality, the way we look at things is very holistic, right? So we do look at things from a movement perspective, like where are we doing um, stationary work? Are we doing dynamic work? Are we doing ballistic work? Um, you know, are we are we are we trying to improve somebody's gait right now? Like that's what I think about if we're talking about dynamic, um, you know, and then are we doing things in the sagittal plane, frontal plane, transverse plane, like are we running, we walking, we're jogging, we're sprinting and trying to look at movement from that perspective, but then trying to bring it back backwards. So let's take, for example, hockey, right? So skating, that's what, that's their gait pattern, right? Which is very different than it would be on, on, on dry land, you know, due to the nature of, of the ice, the blade, the boot that they're in. Um, but that's their gate, right? That's what we need to be able to improve uh, for allow them to be able to perform at a higher level, right? And so thinking about what movements are they going to need? You know, they're going to need hip abduction, hip external rotation, hip extension. But to be able to get adequate, you know, those three motions, then we need to get the opposite. We, see, we need to be, have hip internal rotation. We need to get hip adduction. We need to get hip flexion. And to be able to do those effectively, then we also need to have ankle plantar flexion or ankle dorsiflexion. Um, so we just kind of look at things from a joint by joint perspective, but also kind of piece them all together too with a holistic perspective and understand how the trunk is going to affect that too and be able to make sure that we can rotate. Um, so all those types of things are really important. And then we kind of dial it back step by step by what are the things that we can do in the weight room to improve our movement that will eventually transition to improve our abilities, our athletes ability to perform gait. Right. Um, and a lot of that comes down to like some of the things I learned in PRI, like a lot of the things that they look at is from a perspective of, of, of gait and trying to improve somebody's ability and that some, an individual's ability to, reciprocally inhibit, in, inhibit one side to the other side so that they can actually move triplanar. Um, so it is a step-by-step process. We look at gait, then we kind of put uh, take a step backwards and we look at what are the things in the weight room that we can try to improve from a squat, push, pull. We think about those as like stationary type movements. Um, and then look at that from uh, a deeper level. What things do we need to try to improve on an isolation perspective so we can try to improve their their ability to perform these stationary movements so ultimately we can try to improve their gait mechanics. So it is a, we look at things holistically, but there are instances maybe somebody needs a little bit more direct shoulder work. Maybe somebody needs a little bit more direct hip mobility or hip stability work because they're having this issue on their split squat. They're having this issue in their squat. And I know if they're having this issue in a split squat, like it may affect them when we start to run or we start to bound. Um, and those are prerequisites that we look to do before they start skating. Does that kind of make sense? Like it, it's, yeah. it's holistic to a degree, but then it's also very like we can break it down piece by piece if we need to. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the issues with Gary Gray and even like what like Todd Wright's like interpretation yeah. of the system. It, it becomes very hard to pin down what they're just like, do it. <laughs> yeah. And it's great. Like, and there's an element that we need more of that, right? These like dynamic, open, like organic. Hey, this is what I got today. Like, I mean, it's, 
I think one of the most underrated aspects when you're watching Gary Gray and him taking someone through, he comes off as like kind of hokey and kind of like, you know, a little corny, right? Like, oh, you're, you're hip stingerbob. Like, and then you're watching it, like, and you're sitting there, like, Dr. Timoni and the gift stuff, like, breaking it down. Like, you have no idea what Gary Gray sees. The guy is a supercomputer and he watches Human Gate. And he's a supercomputer when he's watching this, like, sequence of everted, everted ankle or yeah. feel. And then he's like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to immediately make this reflexive change. And I'm going to load this hip. I'm going to load that knee. I'm going to load this thing to make that person move more efficiently mm. not everyone has that ability not everyone has that like skill set and it's nice when you go hey we can we're gonna funnel into this and we're gonna see if that was good and we go back to the drawing board of like yeah no we, we gotta fix some things but i think this leads into another question of mine because you know what i'm thinking about right now and i don't know if you recall this but I was at USC a long time ago and it was right when we could start MRIing hips and we started to figure out, okay, there's actually hip impingement as much as there is shoulder impingement. And I remember having the conversation with you about it, specifically with your goalies and like, yeah, they're all got hip, hip impingement, whether it's camera pinch or a combination. And we just decided wholesale to not squat them and we just did trap our deadlift. Mm -hmm. We do a lot more unilateral work, you know, especially when we're doing the single leg unsupported single leg squat to a box or a bench. Like we see this massive valgus and we see this massive compensatory action. And you're like, all right, wholesale wise, we're gonna we're gonna ditch these exercises that could be problematic. And it just it, it, it like clicked this whole other thing, but it goes into this like next direction of I remember you kind of, when I went back and visited you when I was in the army, like, yeah, we don't really do a lot of Olympic lifts anymore. We just do rack pulls or we do front squat and we do plyos and med ball work yeah, yeah. And stuff on the ohm or some stuff with the Kaiser. And that's how we train power. And it started to think about like, all right, you know, just like you described with Mike, I'm like, here's this guy who's so established, like this evolution. What I guess I have a question off of that would be, sorry for the long one, the long question off of this, but you know, at a, at a certain point, you know, when you refine, like I think about when you go to like, right, I'm going to commit to doing rack pulls instead of doing hang cleans. It's a lot quicker trajectory to being good at that, right? Like it's, I can get a freshman, never touched a weight in their life. Like keep your back flat, keep your chin tucked and stand up. That's it, right? It's pretty simple. Does that allow you to get to the other things like a more frontal plane squat or a more transverse plane squat? Like, do you think now, like you've opened up now your potential from your programming or exercise selection to go faster to a lateral squat or a posterior lateral squat or, or a lateral lunge, um, does that give you more opportunity to use different implements like a Gary Gray would, like a med ball or a Kaiser, or even like a um, flywheel to go, hey, I can go in these directions quicker, faster, and not be limited or constrained by, god dang, we gotta go, we gotta go high hang, top of the knee, we gotta go below knee, we gotta go to the floor, and that just is, like, that's our power, like, did you find that, like, holy shit, I got a lot more open-endedness to this and a lot more opportunity, and did that allow you to explore these different triplanar motions and different tweaks, as Gary Gray would call it, based on changing yeah. program philosophy? A hundred percent. And it's interesting you talk about like uh, about Gary Gray. Like I was fortunate to be at the University of K Connecticut when Dave Tiberio was there and Dave Tiberio was Gary Gray's right hand man. They would teach courses together. And I had a really good friend uh, who was a physical therapist, John Paloff, who uh, who now works with Mike Boyle. He went to school at UConn and, um, you know, learned under Tiberio and learned gait. And he understood, you know, he would try to teach me um, about assessing somebody's gait and trying to see what happened with their ankle. And I remember um, 
Dave Tiberio would always call himself. He'd be a hip guy and, and Gary would always be a foot guy. And that's the way that's the way that their minds worked in trying to figure out how to create a better pattern of movement, whether they figure out to take their arms out, take their hips out, take their ankle out. And I just remembered that, that they would use different drivers. And if you start to take a step back, the methods that they use that that other coaches use that 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 fall under that, that embrace that philosophy. If you peel everything back, they're trying to improve somebody's movement, right? If you look at the Altus guys and you look at Charlie Francis people like Derek Hansen, like the way they train is to try to improve their athletes' ability to move, maybe at a higher velocity, but like that's what they're trying to do. Somebody who espouses Olympic lifting, powerlifting, um, I don't know unless I ask them if that's their philosophy, if that's their end goal is to help an athlete's ability to move. So when I decided to take out Olympic lifting within our program, it did. It opened up a lot of different avenues because I think it created more clarity in terms of what it is that I wanted to be able to, to do within the weight room. It allowed me to look at the weight room as a weight room. You know, it, you go in a weight room to get strong. Like that is the, that's, that's what the weight room is for. Now I started to look at the, now what is the purpose of strength? You know, so in my eyes, strength is helps us to produce force, right? It allows us to produce. Why do we need to produce force? We need to produce force because it allows us to be able to move and manipulate our bodies throughout our environment and, and be able to move in whichever direction we want to, whether it be forward, uh, laterally, uh, three-dimensionally transverse plane. Like if you start to think about that, things that way, it started to get my myself to understand plyometrics just a little bit more. Plyometrics were just redirecting force you know, at a higher velocity. Strength training, squatting, we're redirecting force, you know, in the vertical plane. Split squats. Like and now you can use different positions. You can use ramps. You can use slam boards. You can use different implements. And all you're trying to do is you're enhancing their their movement but you're just getting them to understand how to redirect force using their whole body together. Same thing, like if we teach a bench press and we bench press all the time, we want to get them to understand how to use their feet, right? Not to just create an arch like through their back, but get them to understand how do I sequence my feet, my knees, my hips, my upper body all together in an effort to produce force against the ground to move the bar, right? It's me moving my body against the bar. That's the way we kind of look at things. And it did. It changed my perspective and how we look at strength training, but how we look at the weight room. But if you look at the way sports has kind of evolved too, and I don't work with football and I haven't worked with football in years, but the sports that I work with specifically are highly skill-based sports where you don't always have to be the biggest. You don't always have to be the fastest. You don't always need to be the strongest. If your skill set is elite you can be a high level player, even though your physical capacity may not be that great. So I started to look at things from a different perspective and say, all right, if I can help an athlete perform their skills harder, faster, and longer, improve their capacity, improve their ability to, to produce force and reduce force, that's going to help them stay a little bit more healthy. And that's going to allow increase, improve their ability to be available for our coaches to be able to use them. And so that's the way it kind of shifted perspective. Instead of looking things like, oh, we have to Olympic lift. 
left. If you if you think about it that way, then you're like you're pigeonholed, right? Like you've got you've got a tunnel vision, and and just like you outlined, that's a great progression to get somebody to understand how to clean. But what is the point of doing an Olympic lift? What is the point? What is the objective of doing that exercise? And if you ask a lot of people, they're going to say, "Well, it's to improve rate of force development." Okay. All research shows that Olympic lifters on average have highest recorded vertical jumps, but I'm going to argue they don't have to do anything else. They don't have to change direction. They don't have to have a high aerobic capacity. They don't need to sprint. They don't need to change direction. They don't need to repeat specific skills. From an athlete's perspective, especially when you work with a skill-based sport, they need energy to perform their skills. They need energy to perform uh, their tactical work. They need energy for uh, cardiovascular work, all these other things. So, when I was able to take out Olympic lifting, it allowed me to emphasize movement that much more. And then when we break down progressions and regressions, now we can start from a standpoint of understanding, all right, we need, we're going to do this movement first because it allows us to sense and feel your body. Because if we can sense and feel, then we can control and change. And that's what we're really looking at. And then even like now layering on top of under, uh, a greater understanding of fascia and understanding positioning, it's even more important to get our athletes to understand, like, can you sense and feel your body in these positions, you know, and can you sense and feel them so that when we ask you to do something static and then we're going to progress it to doing something dynamic, can you feel those same positions? And then eventually when we, if you do it frequently, frequently enough, it starts to become a habit. You don't have to think about it now. And now we can start to do ballistic things. And I can see that you're going to be in the middle of your foot. I can see that you're going to extend and push the ground away. I can see that you're going to have stability excuse me and control in the right positions so yes to answer your question i don't know if i did but um taking out one movement or one grouping of exercises sport in and of itself has allowed me to open up my menu but also open up the potential of improving our athletes ability to move that much more effectively and it does like it's you know, we can use any implement that we have. We can use barbells. We can use dumbbells. We can use kettlebells. We can use medicine balls. We can use a Kaiser. We can use an ohm, which I'd love to talk to you about too, um, because I think it does kind of play into this part of uh, of impacting fascia. Um, flywheels, like the bands, like there's so many different things that we can use to load movement to try to improve their their ability to produce that, to perform that movement much more effectively and efficiently and repetitively. So my follow-up question to that, and go into we go into all more isokinetic stuff, and or any kind of like form of resistance, or this idea of you know this holistic approach, and I'm I'm defaulting my mind to, and I've just finished the book, and I've written it, and I've talked about in science of practice, they talk about having the standard distribution of concentric, eccentric, and isometric, no matter what, like a 60-30-10 split. I think about the same thing with sagittal frontal transverse. I think about the same thing with like a barbell, dumbbell, kettlebell, med ball, isokinetic, inertial based stuff. I think about what is it relatively speaking to the athlete's goal, like that ratio shifts and adjusts. So my question to you would be, do you have a system per se of we get closer to preseason, we got to hit more frontal plane, transverse plane stuff. When we get closer to season, we got to hit more, more isokinetic inertial stuff or more extensive plyos or more like this reflexive type of stuff. Like, 
What is your thought progressing throughout the offseason now that you just basically just alluded to I'm not fixed into I got Olympic lift, I got a power lift, I gotta I gotta get them this benchmarks of bench squat clean. I can now progress this in a way that's relative to the task, whether bioenergetically or biomechanically or even from a force velocity work type perspective. Like what does that thought process now look like for you? Yeah, the um I think we've always kind of had this this idea in, in my head about how to structure and sequence programming. And I learned this from Mike way back in the day, but we look at where do we need them to be? And we kind of work backwards from that standpoint. Like, so when we get to preseason with any sport, we need to be able to perform uh, in the transverse plane and we need to be able to have a high level of power endurance, meaning that we need to be able to repeat ballistic movements at a high rate of velocity over and over and over again. And so for us to have power endurance, we need to have power subsequently before that. To have power, we need to have strength. Before strength, we need to have uh, some semblance of stability. And um, so we kind of work backwards. So from a contraction-based standpoint, we tend to do a little bit more isometric work first for that sense and feel to try to improve tissue length to try to improve any densifications that we may have that built up over the course of the season. Any movement restrictions, we're going to do isometric work first to try to enhance your ability to, to get in those movements. And the the time and attention by doing eccentric contractions is going to be that much greater than if we're going to do concentric contractions. Then we'll kind of shift into eccentric where uh, it, when we do ISOs, the question we ask ourselves is, can we get in the right positions? So that's first and foremost. Then we're going to start to do eccentrics. Now, can we get in and out of that position? Now, can we get in on that position with load? Then can we get in and out of that position repeatedly with speed? Um, so that's kind of like the model that we would work with. So isometrics would be tend to be first. Then we'll do a phase of eccentrics. Then we'll typically do concentrics. And we're just going to surf this force velocity curve where by the end of the off season, we're going to do things at a higher rate of velocity. We are going to do more extensive plyometrics. We are going to do um, things with a faster tempo. Whereas early in the off season where we might want to emphasize maybe some hypertrophy if, if, got, if, if some athletes might need that. Um, and we'll do some longer time under tension type work near the near, as we get closer to the season. Um, we're going to do some shorter base type stuff so we can tr- really try to improve their power outputs as close as you know w- when when they need it. You know, like I've told athletes, like you don't need to be you don't need to be powerful. You don't need to be in great shape in May. You know, so we don't need to do Olympic lifts. So we don't need to do a ton of power power based exercises. So we could probably spend a little bit more time getting stronger at that time. We can spend a little bit more time uh, working on adding a little bit more muscle mass if we if we can. Um, and then we'll as we get closer to the season, we can shift shift our goals and shift our perspectives. Um, but it, it, that's how we kind of look at things from a from a perspective of sequencing and progressing athletes to be able to get to where they need to, so we can best prepare them for for sport and for competition. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but I distinctly remember early 2000s, maybe late, early 2000s, you were one of the big adopters of like Jay Schrader's, uh, you know, Adam Archuleta, functional ISOs, yielding ISOs, um, very reflexive type of training. It does bring an interesting thought. And it was like, the backstory is a lot based off of Marinovich's philosophy too, if I recall correctly. But the thought, and this is something that I think is an interesting point to go in this direction of like, can we improve our function in certain positions 
and be reflexive and getting more better proprioceptive input. And you talked about it, fascia, just this kind of like proprioceptive organ. You're doing this like what like Schrader would call it pogos in a like deep squat position and just the ball of your foot. You're doing maybe rudiment series. You're doing high, high, like high like rep or low amplitude med ball tosses and throws. You're just developing a more a more robust nervous system at these lengths and things like that. When we think about fascia and we think about this this tissue that's not a nerve, it's contractile, it's it's got a lot of proprioceptive nerve endings, a lot of lot of receptor sites on it. You know, when you're looking at your guys throughout the off season and you're thinking about all right, I'm doing these functional isometrics. I'm doing these, you know, higher amplitude stuff or lower threshold stuff, but I'm just trying to get a feel for it. You know, what is your thought process when you're looking at that person looking coordinated and looking like they're efficient? Because, you know, one of the things that I find with a lot of these things is they're more efficient and they need less, they need to utilize less mechanical energy, you know, and there's a really good book by Bud Charinga talking about the difference between male and female weightlifters and specifically in China and they were able to like just blow out world records in the last 25 30 years because they're just way more efficient and it shows to the point of their facial expression if it's like tranquility when they're lifting and they need to be like wearing blankets and heated during in between sets because they get so cool and they're not using their elastic energy as efficiently as they used to versus the male like it's extreme aggression it's mechanical expenditure and they're just really inefficient. Like, and it can only get so much density in an hour block. And he compares it to this idea of the Fosberg flop of male weightlifters are still doing scissor kicks over a high jump. Female weightlifters are literally Fosberg flopping. Definitely. They just get to a certain point at the bar and drop. And that's it. They don't care about how high they pull it. They care about how well they can get under it. And they show that like, is like that. Can they time the oscillation of bar? Mm. And they bounce at the bottom, like all these cool things. But I guess my point being is, you know, you're watching or you're doing these things, functional ISOs, you're doing these extensive plyos, you're doing stuff that's facilitating this stuff. Are you seeing like, is it a fascia thing? Is it a bioenergetic thing? Is it just like a coordination thing? When you're watching your athletes, you're like, yeah, this is working. This is clicking. I, I, I like where this is going. Do you have a feel, a vibe for that? Is that just like 20 years of doing this, 20 years plus of doing this? Of like, I know what it looks like when it's going good. Like, you know, maybe that's that qualitative aspect you were talking about before. Is that a question? Is that something that you can kind of elaborate on? I'll try my best, but I, I think <laughs> right. it is. It, it's an awful question. I think, it's, <laughs> I, think, I think it is something that that's evolved over the course of 20 years, and I think it's the the evolution of my coaching eye and being able to sense and look at movement just a little bit more effectively. Um, the way I look at movement is really is really at the feet. Like I, I am a big proponent of coaching feet and teaching feet and getting athletes to understand how to get grounded from the, from, from their feet and through their feet and through PRI. And, and, and I've really learned that your brain is always trying to search for stability, right? Cause your brain, it doesn't know where you are, right? The, the eyes are, your eyes give information back to your brain of where you are within space, but ultimately your brain is looking for stability. And when it finds stability, sometimes it'll find stability with your eyes. Um, when it finds stability, then it can deliver outputs, right? But if it doesn't feel, if it cannot get instability from the ground because you can't feel your feet, 
then it's going to go up the chain and try to find stability. So I've found, and I don't know, this is just a hypothesis, that I think where, if you've worked with hockey players, when they start to do a lot of dry land training, a lot of them always have shin splints. Why do they have shin splints? Because they're in a hockey boot that's very rigid, that does not move on a one-inch piece of steel on a, a surface where the friction is zero. So the inability to feel the ground is going to be that much greater than if you had a dry land athlete or somebody that was in shoes that can really feel the ground. So, and if they can't find stability through their feet, they're going to go up their chain. So it might be their anterior tib, or if you go further up the chain, it might be hips. So I think some sort of like something is hip impingement is a symptom of inability of an athlete's ability to find stability through their feet. The brain is searching to get stability somewhere. So it's going to try to keep going up the chain and your hips should be a joint that's designed for a lot more mobility rather than stability. So I think that's a reason why that sometimes hip impinge might happen. Um, similar with shoulder impingement. Um, if you use your hands a lot and you can't feel your hands and you can't get grounded with your hands doing bear crawls and push-ups and things like that, maybe that's going to lead to some shoulder impingement up the chain. Um, again, just a theory and just a hypothesis. Not there's nothing um, I've read in research, anything like that. Just something that I've I've noticed and I've found. So going back to the feet. So when we do isometrics and we start with isometrics, coaching the feet is extremely extremely important. So if you were to do this and you were to do a split squat hold, and I don't know how you coach it, and if you told your athlete to feel the ground, feel your whole foot pushing through the step you're going to start to notice that your hamstrings will turn on, your posterior hip capsule will turn on that much more effectively than if you just stood in a split squat and just hung out. Then you might feel impingement in your hip. You're going to feel your quad start to burn. But when you start to push and you get stability through your foot, now you can feel the back of your hip capsule. And then what I start to think happens is now your femur is going to be that much more centered within your acetabulum. And now you're going to be that much more effective. And you can see when somebody has a sloppy foot, if they're just there or if they're actually pushing down and they have an active foot where they're pushing through the ground. So when I notice that they can do those types of things and they have the ability to connect their brain to their body that way, I know when we start to go into a split squat or if we go into a squat and we go into whatever maybe lower body exercise we have, and I can see that their foot is grounded against the ground and they're understanding how to create leverage and push against the floor, then I know that they're going to be ready. So when we start to do maybe a little bit more pogo jumps and, and more uh, maybe continuous hurdle hops or any kind of reactive base plyometrics or depth jumps, if they're that's what they're ready for, they're going to know how to coil and create that almost catapult effect because they know where to create stability and they know where to create rigidity so they can improve that stiffness so that they can produce force at, so, at that much higher level. And I think all of that stuff really impacts our fascia. It, it, it's what we're really targeting because fascia has three main components, right? It's viscous, right? It's ability to slide and glide against muscle. It's elastic, which is like really training it through those the plyometrics, but it also has a lot of plastic properties, which means that it can it can resist and it can change to whatever and it can deform to whatever forces are going to be being placed upon it. Um so so I think doing a sequence, a um a well thought out sequence of exercises starting with isometrics can really improve an athlete's ability to sense and feel, which in turn for me as a coach 
can better guide them and see if they're producing force and producing movement in the most efficient manner possible. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Um, and a lot of thoughts coming to my head on that. One being, you know, Mike Boyle's line, I don't need to function a movement screen my team. I know what the, my program is going to be because I do, I base it off of that. But the other part, it's, you know, you're getting to these pliers, you know, you're getting to these outlet or these like big rock things that you want to get with your programming. And you're looking at something as simple as the bottom of a split squat. And if they can't control that position or if they have poor length tension, poor stability, poor foot proprioceptive awareness, then how am I going to land effectively when I start to increase the threshold or the velocity or the, or just the intensity of anything? Um, so you're getting your diagnostic right there of what their potential is for hurdle jumps. And, you know, I see it all the time, right? When I'm coaching a squat and person's telling me like, I just, I'm not powerful. And they have this, like, get to that, that point with that thorax pump handle lifts and the pelvis dumps and then they just push their butt back yeah. like yeah when you start to lower yourself down your only way to handle that range or that position is to take tension off the quad and mm. push your butt back so if you're trying to get as much vertical force output when we start to descend to a certain position to get more space or more like movement your strategy is away from the direction you want to go and vice versa, probably with horizontal or vice versa with frontal or transverse. Like, yes. Yeah. You've lost the ability to maintain that position. So we got to fix this first. And it goes on this whole other idea of fractals and, you know, let's, let's rule out the lowest, lowest hanging fruit first. Like, do you have the range? Yes. Great. Do you have the stability? Yes. Great. Okay. Do you have the control? No. Okay. Well, we got to work on that now. And you start to build into once I get that control, then I'm going to start to add force or velocity or duration and whatever other things go with that. I want to take this home here. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm pulling a lot from this is this idea that, you know, fascia is this, this, this thought of it, it's ethereal. It's bigger than just like, yeah, just foam roll or do try fighter movement. It's, it's a um, it's a holistic. It's a philosophy. It's when you see that you're like, yeah, you are shaped by this bigger narrative of what training is, and you know what your tools are, your weight room to get them strong. You know what your goals are to get make your athletes robust and resilient. You know, so you know what you're th what I'm hearing from you is that it's not this like compartmentalized thing that we can look at in isolation and reduce down to just yeah it's just fascia right and it has a much more cohesive element to it and interconnectedness to it like is that the vibe is that the thought process you would want any listener listening to this to kind of take from that yes and you know it's it's challenging because when in school like and i don't know who's listening to this if it's young coaches older coaches uh people that have been around for a while, we're often taught to th to look at things from a from a reductionist perspective, right? We look at the cardiovascular system, we learn the the muscular system, we learn the endocrine system, we learn the cardiovascular system. Like we just learn in a systems based approach, which it's a it's a term that we all kind of use. Um, but I'm going to challenge you to think about this: is like if you get sick, is it? Yeah, people are going to say, "Oh, what's your immune system?" Well, what happened to my immune system? Maybe it's because I drank last night. Did that affect it? So was so now my nutrition has gone into it too. Was it my my lack of sleep that contributed to my immune system? Was it my my inability to control my mental stress that affected my immune system? So you start to look at things from 
a holistic perspective in understanding that nothing happens in isolation. Nothing happens in isolation. And so if we can look at that perspective from our lives, then we got to look at those things from the way we look at movement, right? Because our bodies are meant to to breathe and move, right? That's the thing is if we if we really truly value movement, then we're going to start to look at movement from a holistic perspective and understanding what fascia is. It is a, it's a sensory organ. It is another system that you should learn about in school that we're learning about right now. It's a, it's a sensory system because like you said before, there's thousands of proprioceptors that are embedded within your fascia. And then you got to start to understand that every time that fascia gets stretched, it's communicating information back to your brain uh, about the joint position, uh, the rate of change, the, the load that's being placed upon it. And your brain has to coordinate a lot of other proprioceptors and joints, muscles to work together to allow you to coordinate that movement so that you can navigate your environment, like which we talked about before. So if you value movement, then you got to start to understand what fascia is and what it does and how you can impact it both through outside of just compression work, right? Because a lot of people understand that we can compress fascia, but attraction work, like fascial stretching, strength training through full ranges of motions, like that, that's traction. That's how you can really tension your fascia. And, and the understanding every time you tension your fascia, you're sending signals back to your brain. Like that, if you can understand that and understand what your brain's job is it's to direct movement it's to deliver the right outputs to the right areas so that you can move much more that that much more effectively yeah it's funny when i see um you know traditional strength strength conditioning program and you watch it let's say you're coaching there right like yeah you know we're good in the olympic list we're good at all these things and then you know what you know i'm gonna really get into some of these like big rock kettlebell movements like a get up or a windmill and then the first time you do it, it, it's a nightmare, right? And you're like, how does this happen, man? Our guys can hands with the best of them. You're like, I've neglected that. I've neglected that. I've neglected creating tension in the frontal and transverse mm. I've neglected playing, creating length. And I'm not saying do those exercises. Like, do them, don't do them. It doesn't matter. But it's an indicator of what you're not doing. It's you could avoid it as all costs because it's hard and it's a lot of intricacy and there's a lot of things that expose your programming, I guess, just focal point. But on the other end, it's a pretty good tell on just how holistic your program really is. And if it feels like your hips about to explode, if you feel like your shoulders cramping and you're shaking uncontrollably when you're doing like an arm bar or a windmill or a get up, it's an opportunity in my mind and it's a it's a thing to look in and do some introspection on your programming and say if i ask eventually i'm gonna have to go in that direction with my hip and my shoulder at a high rate and eccentrically load it do i have the bandwidth to handle that in a slow controlled high constrained environment like a windmill now if i increase the threshold increase the suddenness increase the randomness of that what is my potential to recover from that and it's probably pretty small so Maybe do those exercises, maybe don't. You know, maybe get a med ball in there every once in a while. Maybe look at your plyo progressions of like, yeah, I can go up and down. I can go forward and back. Can I go side to side? Can I go rotation a little bit more? Can I look at, okay, if they can back squat 500 pounds, can they lateral squat or single leg squat with control or through a full range of motion or without looking like, like basically their nipples are below their knees on a lateral They're gonna squat. crumble, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's like, yeah. Like, we're, we're preparing athletes to do things that are really beyond scope or understanding, right? Like 
you, we have very little understanding of what's going to happen. And when we look at this short-sighted approach of just get them strong or whatever it is, there's this big tissue all over our body that's saying you're neglecting a huge, huge aspect of this, man. So amazing insight. Um, honestly, like I, that was awesome, man. And, um, you know, I just got a bunch of books I got to want to dive into and um, a lot of cool things that just, I know you always did a great job of making me think and kind of like, I always loved your confidence about like, no, nah, I don't do that. <laughs> you know, like, well, <laughs> no, this is who we are. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit, like I, I'm everything subject to change. So um, that is something to be applauded and something to be appreciative. And like, um, you know, I think the bigger picture is anyone is listening to this young, old, doesn't matter. Like you're the living embodiment of if you are really good at what you do and you're good at selling it and you believe in what you do and you have confidence, et cetera, like you can make a seemingly small place a big deal. And, you know, I think that's, I think there's a huge insurgence of a lot of like, you know, mid-major schools or schools and smaller conferences that you've created a model for. So thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I think as a whole, like, you know, just thank you for taking the time, man. This is awesome. So I really appreciate this and everything, every interaction we've ever had, man. So thank you. I appreciate that, Tim. Thank you for those kind words. And uh, yeah, it's, it's cliche. A lot of people say it all the time that you want to make the big time where you are. And, um, you know, I didn't know I'd be here this long, but it's, uh, it's become home and, and if you do a good job, you know, and people notice it, like they're going to continue to invest in you and they're going to continue to, you know, empower you to, to lead and do what you do at a high level. So I'm appreciative of the opportunities that I've been given. Um, but in that, in that same sense, a lot of it has come from a lot of self-exploration and can, in a never ending thirst for, for learning and trying to improve. Yeah, man. I mean, you just shoot like at the last, like the past 20 years of things that you've acquired since you've been in a position and it's really easy resting on your laurels like i would imagine a place like quinnipiac not saying it would be exactly like that but it's not like being at usc where every year you're on the chopping block for someone who's going to come better but on the other end it's that reason why you took that that proverbial leap into the great unknown of pri and everything else is why you'd be able to probably create what you did so um great lesson for everybody man like you know you're never as good as you should be and you can always do more and you can always do better and you know if you have a good job make it great because you know like it shouldn't be taken for granted man so thank you again man i honestly just appreciate everything man so um we'll get this up here extremely quickly and i'll have all of uh all the things that uh is Brajesh Patel out there to the world. So um, if you like this a little bit, you should definitely dive deeper in everything B's got because um, it's just scratching the surface. So um, amazing stuff, man. Really, thank you for the time. Thank you. All right, brother.